Well, good evening. Welcome back to um, our School of uh, Theology. This is, uh, this is week number 14. Uh, we had, um, I, I guess this is actually week number 15. Last week we had a Q&A uh, session, which our two sisters thought was tonight, but was actually last week. But uh, your questions will go up on the website uh, later on uh, this evening. Um, I, I'm, I'm preparing these, uh, you know, as we go along. And uh, what, what looked like a two-year plan is, is now expanding a little. So I'm, I thought I'd better contract just a tad, uh, lest this become a four-year uh, plan. Uh, so tonight we're going to look at the wisdom of God and um, the incomprehensibility of God. And then next week, uh, perhaps, perhaps one of my most favorite uh, doctrines to talk about, uh, the doctrine of the Trinity. Now if you think that anything we've done so far has been even remotely difficult, uh, next week uh, we'll stretch uh, your brains to breaking point, uh, the doctrine of the Trinity uh, there is only one God, but there is more than one who is that one God. And therein lies uh, the mystery uh, of the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, I uh, trust you've all got uh, copies of the outline uh, for this evening. It should be number 14. God is wise. Uh, God is uh, incomprehensible. And uh, we begin uh, with some words. Uh, there are couple of words in Greek and there are, there's one particular word in Hebrew um, but uh, Romans 16 27 the only wise God uh, we've just sung uh, a hymn uh, immortal invisible God uh, only wise in light inaccessible hid from our eyes uh, God is wise uh, Colossians uh, 2.3, uh, speaking now about uh, Christ, in whom are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge hidden. Uh, and there you see a, a little bit of a distinction uh, between wisdom and uh, knowledge. And the Bible makes a distinction between uh, what it means to be wise and what it means to know something. Uh, that to have knowledge, uh, to, to have an intellectual grasp of something, doesn't actually necessarily make you wise. Uh, so uh, we've looked uh, previously at uh, the doctrine of God's omniscience, that God knows uh, everything. Uh, he knows all facts and he knows all potential facts. He knows everything that is and everything that could possibly be. Uh, but in addition to God's omniscience, that God knows everything, everything that has been, everything that is, everything that will be, both actual and potential, in, in addition to the fact that God is omniscient, God is also wise. Now, I was uh, trying to reach for a definition of wisdom, uh, and I'm going to do it along several attempts here. Uh, which is what the next uh, few bullet points are. These are just my musings, uh, trying, to, trying to get at a definition of wisdom. Uh, what, does, what do we mean when we speak about 
wisdom. So first of all, wisdom is more than knowing all facts or potential facts. It's more than knowledge. It's more than uh, um, the, the acquisition of information. Uh, wisdom, uh, this, is a, this is an attempt at a definition here, that wisdom uh, is the power to see and the inclination to choose the best and highest goal together with the surest means of attaining it. Uh, there is something about wisdom uh, that is inherently goal-oriented. Uh, there's something about wisdom that is practical. Uh, God is naturally and invariably entirely wise. He defines what it means to be wise. Uh, so you can think of the, some of the greatest intellects in the world, but they're not necessarily the wisest people uh, in the world. Uh, and that scripture distinguishes then between knowledge and wisdom. Uh, we've already seen that in Colossians 2.3. But let's uh, look at a couple of texts here. First of all, a text uh, that distinguishes knowledge and wisdom in God himself. Uh, the peroration of Romans 11. Uh, remember that Paul has been uh, expounding on uh, revelation and justification and sanctification and glorification. And then in chapters 9, 10, and 11, he's uh, talked about the eternal purpose of God in gathering together Jews and Gentiles. He is the potter, we are the clay. And he's, uh, he's reached that, uh, that uh, tremendous climax in verse 26 of Romans 11, uh, that all Israel will be saved. Uh, and then, at the end of the chapter, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches, uh, and wisdom, and knowledge. The depth of the riches, and wisdom, and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. Wisdom and knowledge. Uh, he's extolling God's wisdom and knowledge. And there's a distinction between wisdom and knowledge. Uh, then in 1 Corinthians 12.8, you see it again, this time in, in gifting uh, of uh, human beings, of man. To one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom. To another, the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12 is talking about the diversity of gifts. Uh, there's one body, but there are many gifts, and we're gifted differently. The Spirit gifts us in different ways. One is given the gift of wisdom. Another is given the gift of knowledge. Distinguishing between wisdom and uh, knowledge. Uh, a lengthy uh, quotation now from uh, Herman Bavink, the Dutch uh, theologian. Uh, his, uh, his works have been translated uh, into English only in fairly recent years. Uh, knowledge and wisdom are rooted in different human capacities. Uh, we acquire knowledge by study, wisdom by insight. The former is achieved discursively, the latter intuitively. Uh, knowledge is theoretical, wisdom is practical and goal-oriented. Uh, Knowledge is a matter of the mind apart from the will. Wisdom, though a matter of the mind, is made subservient to the will. Knowledge, accordingly, is often totally unrelated to life, 
But wisdom is oriented to and closely tied with life. It is ethical in nature. It is the art of living well. It characterizes the conduct of those who make the right use of their greater store of knowledge and match the best means to the best ends. Now, you may, uh, you may have some uh, quarrel with uh, Bavinck's uh, faculty psychology here and the relationship of mind and, and will to knowledge and wisdom and so on. That's beside the point. Um, but he is, uh, he is, I think, making an important uh, uh, distinction here between um, wisdom and knowledge, that uh, wisdom... Uh, Wisdom is something that is more than just something of the brain. It's more than just uh, something intellectual. Uh, It is uh, is something uh, that's uh, goal-oriented. It it knows the goal and it knows how to achieve that goal uh, in a way that brings greatest glory um, to uh, God. An interesting interesting point that Babink makes uh, I think, and uh, worth thinking about, that, uh, that knowledge is achieved discursively. You, you, you ask questions, you interrogate, you, you, uh, you, you, you get it uh, piecemeal. Um, but, uh, but there's something about wisdom that is intuitive. Uh, you, might even, you might even say you either have it or you don't. You know, if you haven't got knowledge, you can acquire knowledge. Uh, you can read a book, you can ask a question, you can listen to a lecture... Uh, or so on. Uh, wisdom, it's not so easy to get wisdom. Wisdom is intuitive. You either, you either have it or you don't. Uh, it's, a, it's a gift of wisdom. Uh, that's something that you might want to, want to ponder. Uh, who, is it, who is it that you'd think of as wise? They may not be the most intellectual people in the world. Um, and, and vice versa. Now, Scripture also, and this is, uh, this is fascinating, Scripture also um, associates God's wisdom with power. A couple of uh, verses from Job here. Uh, he is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Wise and strength. Wise, wisdom and power. Uh, who has hardened himself against him and succeeded? Or Job 12:13, uh, With God are wisdom and might. He has counsel and understanding. Wisdom and might, counsel and understanding. Now, if uh, if wisdom involves not only knowing the right goal, knowing the right end, but also being able to achieve that end, you can see why wisdom and power are associated together. God's wisdom is not only that he knows the right end, that which most glorifies him, but he's also able to achieve that. He's also able to bring that about. Uh, So wisdom and the power to bring that about are often uh, associated in Scripture. Uh, To to him who is able to strengthen you, there's the power aspect, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, and then a little further down in the Romans 16 uh, quotation, to the only wise God uh, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Again, associating strengthening power, God can empower you uh, with wisdom. He is, the, he is the only wise God. So God not only has the knowledge uh, of what needs to be done, he also has the power uh, to accomplish it and uh, to ensure that it is done exactly as he um, intends. 
So uh, let's, uh, uh, let's go back and um, try again at a definition of uh, wisdom. Uh, I've, got a, I've got a few of them here, uh, and uh, the best one is not my own. Uh, God's wisdom is his ability to achieve his own purposes in the best possible way. Or, God's wisdom is his employment of all his attributes, all that he is in every facet of his being, to achieve his end and purpose in a manner that is truly good. Well, I didn't like that one either. Uh, Romans 8.28 came to mind. God's wisdom is his knowledge of what is best for us, what brings him ultimate glory, and his ability to achieve it in a way that ensures that all things work together for the good of those that love him. But in order for Romans 8.28 to be true, that all things work together for good, God has to be wise. And in order... And and not just wise, but powerful. It involves both wisdom, knowing what the good is, and the power to make sure that that good is actually achieved on behalf of his people. So let's get back to Jim Packer, which is where we should have started in the beginning. Uh, Wisdom is the power to see and the inclination to choose the best and highest goal together with the surest means of attaining it. There, there's a nice definition of uh, wisdom, and I should have stuck with uh, J.I. Packer uh, all along. Now, um, do you remember, by the way, there's going to be like a six-week, seven-week break uh, between the fall and spring semester when when we restart at uh, middle to late January. Uh, Time enough for you to do your papers uh, and study for your exam. Uh, Do you remember we talked about the simplicity of God? Do do you remember what the simplicity of God stood for? Uh, Well, I've given you a quick reminder here uh, in in the notes. Uh, What what do we mean when we talk about the simplicity of God? And by the simplicity of God, we mean that God is without parts. Remember the Westminster Confession says that God is without body, parts, or passions. And the simplicity was the without parts uh, aspect. Uh, the, the general idea of uh, divine simplicity it, it can be stated this way, that the being of God, who God is in himself, is, is um, uh, identical to the attributes of God. In other words, uh, the, the attributes of God are not to be considered as sort of facets of God, like, uh, like you might draw a pie chart uh, and color you know, a little segment blue and a little segment orange and a little segment uh, green. Uh, one is love, one is justice, uh, one is holiness, one is righteousness. No, the whole chart, God is love, meaning, meaning he, is, he is love in all of his being. He is also righteous, but he's lovingly righteous. He's righteously loving. Uh, he's also just. He is lovingly righteous and just. He is just in his loving Righteousness, right? Right. So all of them have to be applied together. Um, that's what we mean by the simplicity of God. Uh, the simplicity of God implies that the wisdom of God is to be viewed in everything He does. Right. So, 
So God is wise. It's not that a part of him is wise. He is wise. So everything that God does in his very being, everything he does, everything he touches, everything he sees, everything he talks about, all of it is wise. So we can, we can pull out some major things here, like, uh, like creation and uh, redemption uh, and, uh, and providence. Um, God is wise in creation. Uh, the Proverbs 3.19, the Lord by wisdom founded the earth. Uh, by understanding, he established the heavens. What does it take to make uh, a universe that brings him ultimate glory? Well, knowledge for sure, but it also takes wisdom. Uh, it takes infinite wisdom. God is infinitely wise. Uh, God knows how to, uh, how to achieve the end uh, that he has in view. And the end that he has in view is the new heavens and the new earth, the new creation. Uh, and he knows how to bring that about. And he knows how to bring that about in a way that will bring him uh, the greatest uh, glory. And he'll bring that about in a way that is totally uh, moral and ethical, that extols um, his uh, inherent uh, goodness. Or um, Jeremiah 10.12, it is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom. You see this synonymity, these parallel lines, Uh, he made the earth by his power, he established the world by his wisdom. Power and wisdom, Uh, it's like like a parallel statement here. By his understanding, stretched out the heavens. So you've got understanding, knowledge, you've got wisdom, and you've got power. You've got these three things coming into play here in the creation uh, of the universe. Or Psalm 104, uh, verse 24. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. So when you go on that uh, 5 a.m. walk, no, you have to wait to about 6.30 for the light to come up, at least, so you can see where you're going. Uh, and you look out uh, at just the sheer beauty uh, of uh, uh, a sunrise and, and uh, oak trees and, yes, even a squirrel or two waking up and gathering nuts or whatever it, it gathers uh, or a flock of uh, Canadian geese that have just landed uh, for the night uh, and are parked beside a lake somewhere. Uh, you can tell my morning walks. And, um, and you see the wisdom of God. God is, God is so wise. He is infinitely wise. Redemption. Uh, the, the famous verse in 1 Corinthians 1.24, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, you remember in Corinthians, especially in the first two chapters, Paul is contrasting worldly wisdom and divine wisdom. There is the wisdom of the gospel and then there's the wisdom of the world. The world by its wisdom, right, crucified Christ. It despised the gospel. The world thinks itself as wise. But wisdom that doesn't have the gospel, wisdom that doesn't have Christ in it is not wisdom. It calls itself wisdom, but it's not wisdom. Um, Where can you find the epitome of wisdom. Where can you see wisdom personified? Answer? Right? It's either God, sin, or Jesus. It's Jesus. 
right? Where can you see where can you see wisdom personified? Jesus. You look at Jesus and you see the wisdom of God personified in person. Uh, so the the context then of First Corinthians uh, is important. Uh, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, that which Christ came into the world to do. Uh, his incarnation, life, crucifixion. Yes, even the crucifixion is a display of the wisdom of God. Uh, the Jews uh, were offended by it. The Greeks thought it was foolish. Uh, but this is God's wisdom. How, how, can, how can a sinner, a, a rebel sinner, be saved? By a display of this wisdom, the crucifixion of Jesus. Uh, in our room and in our stead uh, as the substitute uh, on behalf of sinners. Or providence, and we could spend uh, an hour or two now uh, talking about the wisdom of God in providence. Uh, I've singled out um, uh, uh, the passage in Genesis 50 uh, that, uh, that uh, describe the inscrutable ways of God in providence uh, this is the story, of course, of Joseph and his, uh, his brothers. Here is uh, Joseph. Uh, and uh, uh, as for you, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And God can only mean it for good. Good meaning, meaning you see the wisdom of God in, in the providence of Joseph's life. Joseph is extolling the wisdom of God. God is wise. God can achieve his ends. Uh, and he can achieve his ends even through the malevolent evil acts of others, uh, without himself uh, being imputed with that sin. He's, he's not the author of sin, nor can, you, nor can you impute sin to God. But he can work all things together in order to bring good for his uh, people. Uh, the wisdom of God then in creation, in redemption, uh, in providence. Now, um, let me do a little um, excursus here for a few minutes uh, on a, an important passage about wisdom uh, and the wisdom of God, especially in Ephesians uh, chapter 3. Uh, and I want to focus in particular on verse uh, 10. I've, I've cited uh, Ephesians 3, uh, almost uh, the first 13 verses, uh, uh, I think all of the 13 verses of Ephesians uh, 3. Uh, and notice in verse 10, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God uh, might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly uh, places. Now, the word manifold, the manifold wisdom of God, um, the, the word poikolos, uh, poikolos, uh, is a, uh, it's a difficult word to say quickly, uh, um, but it's, uh, it's like uh, it's the Greek for multifaceted. It's, do you remember when you were little? Well, I'm speaking to those my age. Uh, when you were little at Christmas time, you'd get, uh, uh, perhaps in your, in your stockings, where I usually got them, a little kaleidoscope. Uh, they were state-of-the-art things, and you looked down and you saw little chips of red and blue and green, and, and, and it was a kaleidoscope, right? And uh, multifaceted. You could see all these wonderful colors and as you turned it around. It, it, you know, it lasted for about a day or so. Um, the, the multifaceted, the, the, the rainbow-like nature of the wisdom of God. So Paul, 
in Ephesians 3 is writing a symphony about the wisdom of God. And he's saying, I want us to think about the wisdom of God from every conceivable perspective. I want you, I want you to look at the ways of God from this angle and that angle and from, from up above and from below and from sideways. And you'll see the multifaceted nature uh, of the wisdom of God. Let me pull out uh, three or four things uh, from the Ephesians 3 uh, passage. Uh, and you can go back and study this a little more in depth later perhaps. But uh, the wisdom of God is displayed uh, in the person and work of Christ. Uh, look at verse 8. He talks about the unsearchable riches of Christ. The manifold wisdom, the multicolored, multifaceted wisdom of God is displayed in the unsearchable riches of Christ. Uh, that includes, of course, everything about Christ. Uh, the Christmas story. Uh, the incarnation. Who would have thought it? Who would have thought that the second person of the Trinity would be born uh, in, in, uh, in a stable in, in Bethlehem? That the infinite, eternal, all-wise, omnipotent uh, God could be contracted to about, I don't know, uh, 15, 16, 17 inches and uh, 8 or 9 pounds, I'm guessing. I, I have no idea, but something, something of that nature. Uh, what Wesley says, you know, is contracted to a span uh, we're about to sing that in one of the Christmas carols. A span is uh, from the tip of your middle finger to your elbow. Um, how they measured horses, you know, um, contracted to a span. That uh, you imagine, this is the second person of the Trinity. This is God, and I'm holding him uh, in, the, in the crook of my, uh, of my elbow uh, and rocking him back and forth. Uh, the wisdom of God. Who would have thought, um, who'd have thought that you'd have seen uh, the second person of the Trinity uh, denying himself, even to the point of death, uh, hanging on a cross. Uh, in, in all, in all uh, seriousness, I think, uh, n- naked to the world. Uh, paintings usually describe him, paint him with a loincloth, but he, he was in all likelihood naked, uh, laid bare, exposed uh, to the world. Uh, despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and uh, acquainted with grief. Uh, the unsearchable riches of Christ. Uh, look at Jesus. Look at him in every possible way, in every, from every conceivable angle. And what do you see? You see something of the, of the wisdom uh, of God. And then uh, Paul says in verse 10, Uh, That the wisdom of God, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities. Um, Commentators uh, have differed and continue to differ as to what Paul might have meant by principalities, uh, rulers and authorities here. Did he mean the worldly powers uh, like the Roman Empire, uh, the the powers and authorities, um, Herod, Pilate, uh, the Sanhedrin court, uh, the Roman officials... Um, Caesar, whatever. Uh, or, or does Paul mean by this reference rulers and authorities um, the angels and archangels, the, the, the rulers in, in, on the other side, as it were, in, in the other world, some of those creatures uh, that are described surrounding the throne of God in Revelation, the elders 
the 24 elders that surround the throne. Uh, what, what, what are these creatures and, and who are they and what do they do? Uh, and uh, there, are, there are orders, there are angels and there are archangels. So, so there's an order of being even within the angelic realm. So is, is the, is the uh, manifold wisdom of God displayed in Christ to the worldly powers or to the angelic powers and and, and depends who you're reading. My own view, I think, is he's talking about angelic powers rather than worldly powers. But the sort of trendy interpretation today is the worldly powers. Um, I, I'm, still, I'm still with the angelic powers. But uh, uh, the, the wisdom of Jesus uh, displayed. Uh, then in verse 10, the wisdom of, uh, the wisdom of God is revealed Uh, Through the church, look at verse 10 again, through the church. Uh, Someone was asking me a question uh, within the last uh, 48 hours about the importance of the church. And uh, if that person is uh, listening, as I think they are, uh, then here's your answer. Uh, It's right here in verse 10. Why is the church important? It's how God's wisdom is displayed. It's, It's not displayed simply in individuals. Uh, but it's actually displayed in the church, in the corporate body of Christ, uh, the church of Jesus Christ. God displays his wisdom. Uh, you wouldn't expect that, would you? Uh, it, it comes at you and you think um, God is actually showing something of his wisdom in the life of the church, in the ministry of the church. The church in all of its, uh, in all of its fragility in all of its uh, complexity, in all of its uh, frailty, the church uh, that's uh, persecuted, the church that's, uh, that's uh, hemmed in, as it were, by worldly powers, and right there. Where, where do you want to see the wisdom of God? You'd think, you'd think you'd see the wisdom of God in the universities, in uh, Athens and um, places, the Acropolis and so on. That's where you see the wisdom of God. Uh, no, you see the wisdom of God in the church. It's counterintuitive. God, God chooses to show his greatest wisdom in the life of the church. As he, you know, as he gathers sinners together and adopts them into his household and, and, and family and gifts them and, and employs them and takes care of them and shelters them and feeds them and grows them. That's where you see the wisdom uh, of God. Uh, then, thirdly, the wisdom of God is displayed in God's purpose to save both Jews and Gentiles. That's a theme in Ephesians 3 and references to Gentiles in verse 8. And then um, verse 6, the mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel. Uh, so part of God's wisdom is that his purpose now involves not just, not just the Jews, not just Israel, but it involves the Gentiles too. So that all Israel will be saved. So the Jews and Gentiles, the whole of God's elect, will be gathered together uh, at the end. And that, that too is a display of God's uh, wisdom. As the gospel uh, goes forth from Jerusalem, Samaria, Judea, to the end, uttermost parts of the world, uh, to Poland and, and uh, Czechoslovakia and uh, the Sudan and Australia and, and Brazil, and it's, as the church grows expands to the four corners of the earth. Uh, you see the multifaceted wisdom of God. Uh, and then uh, fourthly, and this is, uh, this is particularly important, I think, uh, 
because in the middle of this, Paul says, I ask you therefore not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you. Uh, Paul is in prison. As far as he knew, he was facing a death sentence. Now, he would have been released from, from this, but uh, as far as he knew, he was facing a, a, a death sentence. He, he's, he's suffering. And Paul says, I don't want you to be discouraged. This is part of the wisdom of God. God is displaying his multifaceted wisdom in the sufferings uh, of uh, Paul. Now, this uh, statement uh, from Calvin, uh, it's one of my favorite uh, statements. I I find myself citing it uh, again and again, uh, that uh, the government of the church of Christ has been so divinely constituted from the beginning that the cross has been the way to victory and death the way to life. It's all very counterintuitive, isn't it? Uh, that the way to life is the cross. If you want to live, you've got to, you've got to, you've got to be prepared to die. You've got to take up a cross and, and, and follow Christ. You've got, to, you've got to crucify your own ambitions and, and say, I, I live out and out for Jesus. That's where wisdom uh, is being uh, displayed. So as you look out upon a suffering church, um, it's one of the marks of the church in this world, I think, that the church is suffering. Uh, And in areas of the world tonight that are not sitting in this beautiful, uh, architecturally designed uh, room uh, that we're in, uh, and they're instead uh, meeting in secret, and uh, some of them have been uh, arrested and, and put in prison and are uh, being threatened with death. And that's a, that's a very real scenario in parts of the world uh, tonight. Uh, Paul is saying, there uh, is the wisdom of God. Uh, we, might, we, you know, we might be tempted to say, where is God in all of that? And Paul turns it right on its heels and he says, there is the wisdom of God. Uh, God is achieving his purposes God is bringing uh, glory to himself, uh, even in the sufferings uh, of God's people, uh, because he never abandons his wisdom. Uh, he's wise in all that he does. So even, even in the trials, you know, even in the difficulties, even in the problems that some of you are facing, uh, and, and, and you're tempted to say, where is God in all of this? And he's right at the center of it, because he's working all things together for the good of his people. Uh, he's doing what, uh, what Joseph was saying. This man who had been uh, falsely accused of rape for 10 years. I can't imagine what that would be like to be in prison for 10 years on a false accusation of rape. And uh, all of this, even, even that was part of God's uh, wise plan uh, for Joseph uh, to mold him and shape him into the instrument that God wanted him uh, to be. Now let's uh, turn the page, page 6, and uh, let me move on now to uh, incomprehensibility. God is incomprehensible. Um, First of all, uh, we need to deal with uh, claims, and we we dealt with them uh, right at the very beginning of this course when we were talking about the doctrine of revelation. Uh, We talked about uh, philosophical objections to the knowledge of God, that God cannot be known. Uh, they come from all kinds of quarters. Uh, David Hume, for example, that knowledge is uh, limited to sense perception. Uh, or Immanuel Kant uh, and the Enlightenment and, and the universe is still reeling from the Enlightenment. It is still, I think, one of the major forces, uh, even on the 21st uh, century. 
Uh, Immanuel Kant says we can know only the phenomena and not reality itself. Uh, we, can, we, can only, we can only see and, and know for sure things that are in this realm and we cannot know anything uh, in, in the God realm or in the noumena as Immanuel Kant said. Uh, which leads to all kinds of skepticism. How, how can God be known at all? Uh, now, the doctrine of, uh, or logical positivists, uh, scientists, if you like, uh, which is the major philosophy behind much of modern science, uh, we can only know that which science can prove. Now, in, in uh, contradiction to all of those sort of views, uh, we assert, and we assert with absolute conviction and clarity, that God is knowable. God can be known, that true things about God can be known. God can be apprehended. Now, we tend to use the, the verb to apprehend, meaning, meaning, meaning something that a policeman might do and, and put you in prison. Uh, I'm, I'm using the word apprehend in its old-fashioned sense, uh, that, that God can be known. Uh, God can be comprehended in one sense. Um, he can be known. Uh, now, uh, do you remember way back uh, 12 or 13 weeks ago now, we were talking about general revelation. We looked at Romans chapter 1. Uh, we said things like, uh, God is known by all men and all women in the entire world. Uh, Romans 1.21, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. It's not, that, it's not that the atheist doesn't know God, it's just that he denies what he actually does know. He holds that truth down in unrighteousness. He suppresses it. Every, every human being knows more about God than he's willing to confess. He, he has knowledge. Uh, the earth and the, and the, and the stars and the, and, and the creation of God day to day display, reveal, bombard us with information about God, that God is, that God is powerful, that God is, that God is bigger than this universe. I mean, all kinds of information, uh, we're bombarded with it all the time. It's just that the natural man suppresses it. He holds it down in unrighteousness. All men know their obligation to God. They know God's righteous decree, Paul says. They know it. It's just that they deny it. It is a, it is a positive act of rebellion. Uh, uh, so, you know, God doesn't believe in atheists. You have to think about that. Uh, God doesn't believe in atheists. Uh, and yet, only believers know God in a covenantal sense, in a saving uh, sense. Uh, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus whom you have sent. Now, uh, we've compressed now a great deal of, uh, of information uh, into those few uh, statements. God can be known. Right? All of us uh, in here who claim to be Christians, uh, we all of us say, I know God. I know him personally. Uh, I walk with him. I talk with him. Uh, I fellowship with him. Uh, I'm in communion with him. I know him. I know things about him. Uh, I know more things about him now after this course than I did before I started this course. I know him. And it's true knowledge. It's true truth, as uh, Schaefer would say. Um, but our knowledge is finite. You know, what we know of God, we know 
only a little. Uh, there's an axiom, forgive me for the Latin once again, uh, finitum non capax infinity, the, the finite uh, cannot uh, understand, cannot comprehend, uh, cannot uh, grasp the infinite. Uh, this is a, an axiom that's uh, been around for a thousand years or more. And it's found its way into uh, schools of philosophy and it's found its way into schools of theology. It's a, it's a, it's a truism. Uh, finitum non capax infinity. Uh, throw that into a text message and email sometime this week. Uh, finitum non capax infinity. Uh, the finite cannot comprehend, cannot grasp um, the infinite. Uh, now that's true for a variety of reasons, and let me suggest um, let me suggest two or three reasons. Uh, one, uh, because of sin. Right, sin limits our knowledge of God. Uh, look at what Paul says in Romans one twenty-five. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Right, we know less than we ought to know. We know less than we can know because we suppress it. We refuse. We, we, we refuse that knowledge. Sin, um, sin has, um, we, here's another thought. Let me think about it. Um, we, we all of us need to engage in epistemological repentance. Uh, we, we need to repent of the way that we think. Right? We need to repent of our ignorance, in other words. Um, sin limits our knowledge of God. Uh, immaturity limits our knowledge of God. Um, had Adam not fallen, uh, he would still have acquired knowledge discursively. He wouldn't suddenly have been sort of zapped with you know, X amount of gigabytes of information. Uh, he would still have to investigate. He would still have to leave the confines of uh, Eden and explore what was beyond those four rivers uh, that are described in the creation account. Um, he would still have been an explorer, uh, and he would, have, he would have acquired that knowledge piecemeal. Jesus is without sin, but he acquires knowledge discursively. Right? The, the, the two-year-old Jesus knew less than the four-year-old Jesus, or the eight-year-old Jesus, or the 16-year-old Jesus, or the 30-year-old Jesus. Uh, Luke uh, 2.52, he grew in wisdom, and he grew in knowledge. You know, how did Jesus, uh, how did Jesus know the Old Testament? Well, because he read it. Because he learnt it. Because Mary and Joseph taught him the Old Testament. They told him Bible stories. Uh, he, as a young boy, is found in the synagogue and he's, uh, he's reading the scrolls and he's discussing with the rabbis. Right? He acquires knowledge. Now, in his, in, in, his, in, his, in his divine mind, he is omniscient. He knows everything. In his human mind, he doesn't know everything. In his human mind, he acquires knowledge discursively. Right? Jesus has two natures, two natures in one person, two natures in what we call hypostatic um, union. In maturity, then, Jesus grew in maturity. 
we may balk at saying that Jesus was immature, but he, he was a two-year-old, he was a four-year-old, he was a ten-year-old, he was a fifteen-year-old. Uh, as a two-year-old, he would, he would have known things that were way beyond perhaps your average two-year-old, but it would still have been less than what he knew when he was four. Um, so, so growth in maturity uh, is, an, is, a, is a factor in what we know about God. Uh, creatureliness is a factor. Um, we, don't, we don't know everything uh, about God because we are creatures. We have a finite mind. We have a, an expert on the brain in this room uh, who's written a massive book on the brain. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm a bit nervous about what I'm about to say. But, um, you know, I don't know how much information a brain can hold. Um, but according to this guy, and, and he may be a heretic um, pr- professor, uh, Paul Reber, uh, whoever he is, uh, but, he, but he suggests here, he suggests uh, if your brain worked like a digital video recorder in a television, 2.5 petabytes would be enough to hold 3 million hours of TV shows. You would have to leave the TV running continuously for more than 300 years to use up all that storage. And I, I don't know. The, the brain is finite. You know, it's of a certain size. Some of our brains are smaller than others. And they can only contain a finite amount of information. So, so sin, uh, immaturity, and creatureliness, all, all of these are factors in limiting our knowledge uh, of God. So we say God is ultimately incomprehensible. He, he, is, he is knowable. We may, know, we may know God and we may know true things about God. And what we know about God are true things. But what we know about God is only a little. We only know some things about God. We only know about God what he has chosen to show us and reveal to us. And the fact is that he has only revealed a little I mean, how much information about God do you think your brain could actually hold or digest or fathom? How could you fathom infinity? How could you fathom omniscience? Now, I mean, this has some pastoral uh, implications, of course, because we sometimes sometimes misuse uh, John 13, 7. You know, Jesus is uh, washing the disciples' feet, and uh, Peter is objecting, and, and, and uh, Jesus says, you know, what I do now you don't understand, but you will understand hereafter. And, and that verse is sometimes used, and, it's, and it says something like this, that, you know, what's going on in your life now you don't understand, but when you get to heaven you'll understand. And, and that's actually not what Jesus is saying. He was actually talking about Pentecost and after Pentecost, and Peter would understand the significance of the foot washing because he would see it as, as pointing to the cross, basically. Um, you know, when you get to heaven and, and uh, you'll get a new body and you'll get a new brain, uh, but it'll still be a finite brain. It'll still, it'll still only hold so many petabytes of information. I'm sorry about that, uh, you know, but that's, that's it. We will always be creatures. We will always be finite. We will never be God. I, I believe that we will continue to acquire knowledge discursively forever. 
We will always be explorers. We will always be asking questions and getting information and using that information for the best possible wisdom. So we will grow even in heaven, even, even in eternity. We will grow in knowledge. I, I, I believe that. I think that scripture points in that direction. Uh, that, but, the, but we will still have finite brains. And maybe, maybe there, are, there are things that go on in this life. Terrible things that go on in this life. And, and, and we, we say to ourselves, we'll understand when we get to heaven. Perhaps. And perhaps not. But we will be perfectly happy and content with it in heaven. We will be content not knowing. You know, I, I, uh, I wanted to point you um, uh, here to um, a debate um, that's uh, rather convoluted. Um, and uh, I'm, 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 actually, I'm actually not going to go through all of the details of this debate, and uh, you can chase it up for yourselves. But it's, an, it's a kind of in-house debate uh, between... Uh, two Christian philosophers of the 20th century uh, in the blue corner, uh, or should I say the red corner, uh, uh, Cornelius Van Til, and in uh, the opposite corner would be Gordon Clark. Uh, And um, Van Til says, uh, when God thinks apple, what he thinks is not identical to what man thinks. You know, Van Til, in saying that, that I don't think this was his best day. Um, uh, and there was a big spat about it in the 19, late 1930s, 40s, uh, roughly around about the time of the Second World War. And uh, there was a big brouhaha in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church uh, between uh, Van Til and uh, Gordon Clark. And if this is your thing, you know, this is what keeps you up at night, then I would, I would urge you to chase uh, after this debate and, and, and read the exchanges between Van Til and Gordon Clark. But neither of them, I think, were on their best performance uh, or, or, or either of them ever had their best day in court on this issue. Uh, I think Van Til was trying to maintain the distinction between uh, God and the creature. The, the, you know, the way God sees apple and understands apple is an infinite comprehension. That's what he was trying to say. Uh, but uh, Gordon Clark thought he was trying to say something else, that when God says apple, he actually thinks banana. Uh, and therefore, therefore, that what Van Til was saying was introducing uh, irrationality uh, into the argument and perhaps uh, skepticism into the argument. Now, let me, so let, let, me, let, me, let me cut through it all and say that what we know about God, we know truly. We don't have false information. We have true information about God. What God has revealed is true information. It is what it is. But it's only a little. You know, I wish I had time to take you through the whole book of Job. Maybe I can do it in uh, five minutes. Because, uh, you know, Job is asking the question, why? He wants information. You remember in Job 38, um, uh, who is this that asks questions without knowledge? You know, Job has been asking for a fight. It's, it's an epistemological fight. It's a fight about knowledge. It's a fight about wisdom. It's a fight about understanding. God, God seems to be doing things that are unwise, and, and Job wants answers. And uh, so what, is, what does God do? You know, he asks him, he asks him the 65 uh, questions. 
that, uh, and it starts with this question, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? And uh, Job is dead on the floor. It's a knockout blow. This contest is over in the first round. Uh, because he has no answer to that question or any of the questions that follow. Uh, and then God raises the issue of uh, behemoth and uh, leviathan. If you haven't been in Job recently, you know, Job uh, 39.40, he talks about uh, behemoth and leviathan. Behemoth, let's, let's cut through all the possible uh, identifications here. Let's just for the sake of argument say behemoth is uh, a hippopotamus and leviathan is a crocodile. Why did God make a hippopotamus? Because it looks like something a committee made. Right? A big bulbous head, a tiny little tail, it's all out of proportion. Why would God make a hippopotamus? And what is the answer? I want the shorter catechism Presbyterian answer. For God's glory. That's the answer. Why does God make a hippopotamus? For his own glory. That's the answer. Why does God send pain? For his own glory. That's the answer. That's a difficult answer, isn't it? That's not the answer you want. It's not the answer that you're expecting. It's what, it's what Job received. Job never actually got an answer. Because it's not important that we know. You know, it's not important that I know. What is important is that he knows. And that I trust him. God is, God is incomprehensible. His, his ways are past finding out. So uh, this doctrine is a doctrine that um, ultimately humbles us, doesn't it? You know, and, and I think at the, at, at an end of a semester, we've got one more to go, uh, but at the end of next week, when we've covered the doctrine of the Trinity, I mean, we will know stuff. I mean, seriously, we will know stuff. But you know what all that knowledge needs to, needs to do? It needs to humble us. Because the more you know... The more you study, the more degrees that you do, the more, the more letters behind your name, the more you realize how much you don't know. The, the more I've studied, the more ignorant I realize I am. And how, how great and vast is the knowledge of God. God is wise, but he is incomprehensible. Let's pray together. Father, we, uh, we, we bow in your presence. You are infinite and eternal and all-wise. Your ways are not our ways. Your thoughts are not our thoughts. We, we try to grasp things about you that you've revealed to us. And uh, we are in awe of what it is that you show us. They are marvelous to us. They are, they are beautiful things. But what we know is only a little. And uh, we dare not be puffed up with, uh, with pride. Knowledge puffs up, the scripture says. And we would prick that balloon 
because we are just creatures. We are just tiny specks before you. And you are one who knows everything that is and everything that shall be and everything that could be. And we pray for faith to trust you, even when the lights go out, even when we don't understand, knowing and believing and trusting that what's important is uh, that you understand. So hear us, bless us, for Jesus' sake. Amen.